I'm Warren Berkeley with the Laurel Heights Church of Christ in McAllen, Texas, and we are prepared in this video to begin a course of Bible study, and in this class, we have a course of study outlined that I've really been anxious to get into, and I think you'll really enjoy this study of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 three chapters in the book of Matthew, and we have about 22 class periods to study this passage. So this is where we will spend the summer. And that means we can move through these verses deliberately. We can discuss details and spend a lot of time making practical and personal applications. In this video, I want to introduce the Sermon on the Mount and we'll have some brief comments about the first two verses in Matthew chapter 5. You should have your Bible open there to Matthew chapter 5. As believers in Christ, we hold the Sermon on the Mount in high esteem because of the preacher we hold in the highest esteem. These three chapters give us an opportunity to study the very core or essence of the teaching of Christ. And what he taught reflects who he is and also what he expects of his followers. Stop and consider who spoke these words. An absolutely perfect person, God in the flesh, not just a good teacher, but a perfect divine teacher, never ever made a mistake in what he said or did. And we are privileged to sit at his feet. This alone should attract us to the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus spoke, and as we read and study what he said, the fundamental things are stated in very plain language. The character the spiritual qualities that should be developed in Christians are stated very clearly in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You will notice as we go through these three chapters that sins are exposed. You'll notice that attitudes are taught. Illustrations are given to help us understand what a real follower of Christ is. We have here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the one sermon of God's Son, which perhaps more than any other, defines the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. It will help us in this extensive study of the Sermon on the Mount to be aware of the context and that concerns the book of Matthew in what I'm going to cover with you in the next few minutes. Concerning the book of Matthew, the position of this book in the Bible is significant. It stands immediately after the Old Testament and at the beginning of the New. It is, therefore, a good connecting link between the Testaments. Matthew, all through the book, appeals to the promises and prophecies 
God made in Old Testament times. And then Matthew points out that Jesus of Nazareth and in him, there is the complete fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. Over and over, Matthew reports something about Jesus, and then immediately he says, this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then he quotes the prophet. You'll discover that in Matthew 1.22, in Matthew 2.17, and many other places. Matthew, it might be said, picks up the thread dropped by the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he presents Christ as the fulfiller of the promises made to Israel of the coming Messiah. That's the primary function of the book of Matthew. And packed inside that theme of the fulfillment of prophecy, there is prominence given to the kingdom of Christ. And in these three chapters, citizenship, responsibilities in his kingdom. The next thing I want to bring up about the context of this sermon is the religious climate. I'm persuaded there are some teachings in this section of Matthew that would be difficult to study and understand if we didn't take into account the religious climate of Jesus' day, the religious culture. And we don't have to guess about this. We don't even have to rely entirely on external sources because there is considerable information in the New Testament itself about the religious conditions of the Jewish time and Jesus' day. Using the New Testament as our resource, let me make these observations. The Jews in Palestine were allowed to be a subjected nation and maintain their culture, but they lived under the dominion of the Roman Empire. The Jews of Jesus' day were anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, but their concepts and expectations were carnal, not in keeping with the actual promises and spiritual ultimate purposes of God. The vast majority of the Jews were not living in conformity to Old Testament law. The Jews as a people were divided religiously, and the most powerful religious group was the scribes and the Pharisees. In connection with some of the things in the Sermon on the Mount, it is of particular importance for me to say something about the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees were the self-appointed keepers of orthodoxy. What do I mean, keepers of orthodoxy? These men were the religious police for the Jews. They coveted the power to hold everybody in line. They sought to be the high theological experts who would study the law and then dictate what the common people ought to believe and practice. Over time, these men became very corrupt, hypocritical, and not just overbearing, but unbearable. They developed a man-made system of complicated requirements and human demands. 
They saw themselves as the only really holy people, and their religion was not strictly Old Testament religion. It was a man-made system, a performance-oriented, legalistic, substitute religion. I want you to know before we even start with the Sermon on the Mount that there is a big difference between the religion of Jesus and that of the scribes and Pharisees. And this will become clear as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Their religion involved forms of piety, which were nothing more than a veneer or sham. Jesus' religion involves a relationship with God through him from the heart that exhibits itself in excellent ways in one's outward behavior. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, I want to emphasize, contains the basic teaching of Christ, but not the sum total. I, I think there is a dangerous tendency when we so exaggerate the importance of one part of the Bible that other parts are either ignored or minimized. People do this with the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the 23rd Psalm. In the New Testament, John 3.16 receives so much attention, many who can quote John 3.16 are not aware of the context, and they overlook other equally important verses about salvation. Well, this is dangerous to so emphasize one part of the Bible that other equally important passages are overlooked. I call attention in that regard to Matthew 4 and verse 4. Jesus said, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's Matthew 4 and verse 4, quoting Deuteronomy 8. And I would remind you of Paul's attitude expressed in Acts 20, 27 to declare all the counsel of God. We need to pay attention to everything in the Bible and resist the temptation to chop it up into important parts and trivial parts. I'm afraid some folks have made the mistake with the Sermon on the Mount that I'm talking about. I believe I've heard the thought expressed, if you'll learn and practice the Sermon on the Mount, you don't need anything else. I don't believe that. While the Sermon on the Mount is certainly basic to the doctrine of Christ and fundamental in its nature, it is not the sum total of the teaching of Christ. You see, it must be recognized the Lord sent out apostles Please read about that in John chapter 13, 14, over through 16. The Lord sent out apostles, and through them the revelation of his teaching was given. Do you know how that worked when the Lord sent someone out under his authority? In Luke 10, 16, the one who listens to you listens to me and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So 
what Jesus taught through the apostles is the word of God outside the Sermon on the Mount and the will of God. The Sermon on the Mount is exceedingly important, but we shouldn't make the mistake of placing these three chapters above what the apostles taught that Jesus wanted them to deliver. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a good summary of the general tenor of Christ's whole teaching. But this is not his whole teaching. Something else I need to bring up. While the Sermon on the Mount is practical, it is not just a collection of vague poetic platitudes. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount is, in a strong and direct way, practical. It tells who citizens of the kingdom are to be, what they are to do and not do. But this doesn't mean you can take some statement from the Sermon on the Mount and place it neatly on your refrigerator and express a change in life based on that particular statement alone. These teachings were not intended to be used as isolated sayings or vague poetic platitudes like the sayings of Confucius or something. This is an organized body of teaching that has coherence. Pointing to the day of Pentecost and the kingdom that was established then, concerning itself with the values and principles the Lord set up for citizens in his kingdom. The Beatitudes, for example, were not given as isolated mottos. These are gospel principles. These are characteristics of kingdom people. You see, subsequent to the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, and immediately after his descent from the Mount of Temptation, it is stated in Matthew 4.23 that he went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So, we're talking about the famous Sermon on the Mount, which is really a doctrinal declaration concerning the kingdom which Jesus established. So, concerning the book of Matthew, the writer's main point is Jesus of Nazareth came, and in him there is the complete fulfillment of, of those Old Testament prophecies. The religious climate was dominated by the scribes and Pharisees who were hypocrites. In the Sermon on the Mount, I want to emphasize we have the basic teaching of Christ, but not the sum total. And while the Sermon on the Mount is practical, it is not just a collection of vague poetic platitudes. And remember, this sermon was delivered by the one perfect preacher in the entire history of God's dealings with men. All right. Look at the first two verses in Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. I want us to think about this. When Jesus saw people, the multitudes, what did he see? 
lost sheep. Matthew 9.36 and Matthew 10.6. Sinners. Matthew 3 and verse 2. Matthew 4.17. People who were oppressed. Luke 1, 71 and 74. Needy people, Luke 1, 79. He saw his own people, his own Jewish people. John 1, 11, Matthew 23, 37. He saw division, conflict, hypocrisy, idolatry. Now, were there any good faithful Jews anticipating the Messiah and anxious to do what is right? Yes. Parents of Jesus and John the Baptist, Anna, in Luke 1.37, Simeon. His disciples who came before him on this occasion can be considered works in progress, involved in the development of their faith and their initial learning. Jesus, my point is, knew his audience. Good sermons always take into account the needs of the audience. Jesus is the perfect preacher. So Jesus saw these people, lost, ignorant, but some anxious to learn, and he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Verse 2 says, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, there is a word here I want to define, and it's not a deep or complicated thing, but I'm afraid we shouldn't assume that everybody knows exactly what this means. I'm talking about the word taught. It simply means to impart instruction. But I want us to explore that for a moment. What's involved in imparting instruction? A body of instruction, something to teach, an instructor, someone to impart that teaching, and students, ones who are willing to be instructed and taught and use what they learn. Matthew 5, 1 and 2, seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Here's something of interest. It says he opened his mouth and taught them. This phrase, he opened his mouth, is not simply a decorative roundabout way of saying he said. In Greek, the phrase has a double significance. It is used of a solemn, grave, and dignified utterance or an oracle. It is the preface for a most weighty saying about something that really matters. It is also used of a person's utterance when he is really opening his heart, fully pouring out his mind about things that represent the speaker's depth of conviction. And to that, I want to add a statement made at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that we'll come to in a few weeks. Jesus speaks with the authority of God. Jesus sat down on a hillside with a group of his followers and others, and he talked about what really matters. Next time, we'll begin an in-depth, detailed study of his sermon, Sermon on the Mount. As we read and study this sermon Jesus delivered, 
there will be some constant takeaways. Number one, what does this mean to me? Before we take this instruction in these three chapters and apply this to others and talk a lot about how we know people who ought to learn this and live this way, first, what about me? Number two, we cannot spin statements that may seem harsh or difficult to apply. If Jesus said it, it is the truth, no matter how unpopular or harsh it may sound to modern ears. There is a depth of satisfaction for faithful Christians. When we read this and study this and know this, and understand when we examine ourselves that this is the way we are living. This is our standard, our worldview, our attitude, and this is what we have embraced. Next time we'll talk about blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk about that in some detail. Please subscribe to this channel and hit the bell to receive notifications. These are brought to you by the Laurel Heights Church of Christ. I'm Warren Berkeley saying thank you for listening.